this is Mark from VEDA, and welcome to the VEDA Predictions Podcast, where we break down what's happening in D.C. and provide our predictions for what's coming next. In today's episode, we're speaking with Henrietta Trace and Spencer Perlman from VEDA, and we're talking about the 2020 elections. We are recording on Tuesday, October 20th. So, guys, we've spent a lot of time in recent weeks with our clients talking about what we're seeing from the polls, and we've seen ridiculous levels of early voting. Henrietta, you want to kick us off here um, and give us a little bit of a lay of the land for the presidential race? Sure. Thanks, Abbas. Um, when we are looking at the data that we have so far, about 70% of all the votes that were cast early in 2016 have already come in, and there are about two weeks left until actual election day. So all the trends suggest that we are going to be looking at record turnout. I think that's something that is underappreciated on the street, how much record turnout could skew the outcome of the election. Um, if you're going to have 155 million people or more voting, that's going to be a, a material difference, especially in the swing states. Um, and depending on which way it goes, you know, it could benefit President Trump, it could benefit President Biden, uh, Vice President Biden. You're looking at a pretty substantial potential for an outsized surprise in one direction or the other. Um, now, the key question is, well, which direction does it look like it's going? Based on early voting data, it looks very clearly as though it is favoring the Democratic candidates. Uh, President, uh, Vice President Biden leads amongst women by an average of 17 points in the polls. Um, and female voters are outperforming male voters by about 10 percentage points at this point. They have exceeded their 2018 turnout ratios and are just about to exceed their 2016 turnout ratios. Meanwhile, men are not only underperforming 2018, but also underperforming 2016. So if you go back to that polling data and you know that women are in a 17 point delta in favor of Vice President Biden, that's obviously not great news for the incumbent. Um, in general, you've seen uh, a skew in the data that generally favors the Democrats in all of the battleground states. The one I would spend any kind of time on is the Florida early voting, which started in person yesterday and has already broken records. Um, there you have Democrats leading in the state uh, despite historically being behind in early voting. So that is a trend that suggests that while there is massive galvanization in a state like Florida, where there's usually higher Republican turnout in early votes, that has actually flipped and the, dirt, the turnout is extreme and it is um, in favor of Democrats. So um, just some historical trends that we're looking at and monitoring. Of course, the most overarching data set that has been so consistent is just the national polls, which translates down ballot to the state and local polls. Um, the spread for Biden right now on the Real Clear Politics average, which takes into account some lower quality and higher quality uh, national polls is 8.6 points which is uh, a pretty clear spread well outside the margin of error. And then on the 538 aggregator site, um, where they mostly prioritize high quality polls, Biden leads by 10 points. That's sufficient to overcome um, the electoral college advantage that Republicans enjoy. Uh, it's, over, it's sufficient to overwhelm um, any 2016 associated polling error. 
uh, that missed in key swing states. And we have in my forecast, which is um, overly generous to the incumbent because of incumbency advantage um, biases that I personally have, um, we see incumbency advantage in state races in the Senate uh, and at the presidential level, and we have consistently. So I put a 3.5 point buffer uh, in each state and require that the challenger exceeds the incumbent by 3.5 points, which is about half a point larger than most other outlets. And uh, at that point, what we see is the Rust Belt going to Joe Biden here by a very comfortable margin. He's up by six points or more in the Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Minnesota area, and well outside that margin in Wisconsin as well. Um, so that's really all Biden needs. And if President Trump is not able to get those states, um, even if he locks up Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, and the rest, it doesn't matter. Biden will have won the race. So um, I just use that as my forecast metric and my sort of guiding North Star, that 3.5 margin of error for the incumbent. And we have Joe Biden winning with uh, 278 votes in the Electoral College, which is sufficient to make him the next president of the United States. Um, most Overwhelming, I just feel really confident in that because it's been so consistent. Um, so I will leave it there and say that it seems very likely that Joe Biden will win. And my my main focus is uh, an area I think is much more interesting is the Senate race. Yeah, Henrietta, actually, before we get into this, just really quickly here, obviously, I think, you know, most people would agree that they would rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump right now, just in terms of what the outlook is. You mentioned a lot about the polls. You mentioned about the consistency in the polling, uh, seven to 10 points, uh, Biden advantage really consistently since March, quite frankly. Um, there still seems to be a little bit of doubt out there about the polling. Can you just talk a little bit about you know, polling and how pollsters are looking at this and what the actual, what actually happened in 2016? Because obviously there's sort of this narrative that the polls were so terribly wrong and, and that's probably not actually accurate. Right. The polls were off by within the margin of error. And I think one of the reasons that they were off uh, was that they undersampled um, and maybe didn't account enough for the education attainment of the voters that they were polling. And when you do not factor in education, you get pretty substantial splits. So for instance, all white voters are not the same. College educated voters skew substantially towards Biden and the Democratic Party. Non-college educated voters skew substantially towards Trump and the Republican Party. And so if you're just going out there and putting a, field, a poll in the field in Pennsylvania and you're saying, oh, you're white, you're going to go in this demographic, you're a male, you're in the age of 40 to 65, uh, I don't really care what your education attainment is, you're going to miss and uh, uh, eventually, we started calling those the silent Trump voters, and that's what happened to a substantial extent in 2016. Um, there was a meaningful turnout in 2016, um, but the polls also, I think people forget, shifted dramatically in the last three weeks of the race. Um, three main things drove President Trump to win uh, via the very narrow route of picking up Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania by the you know fewer than 100,000 votes in, in each, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the three things were, one, you had a third-party challenger that was eating away uh, about 6% of the vote in many of these states. You had a substantial number of undecided voters. Uh, I think 12% of the voters were undecided 
by the last three weeks of the election, mostly because everybody hated both Trump and Clinton. Neither of them were able to uh, routinely exceed the 46% threshold. Uh, that's materially different versus this year where Biden is at 52% and has been above the 50% threshold since June in the average of polls and very consistently. So that's months of very consistent polling data that suggests that he would outright win the election with 52% uh, of the vote, whereas Trump really had to thread the needle with um, a third party vote, independence breaking late in his direction, and then of course the Comey letter, which meaningfully in impacted the undecideds and independents in the race who split uh, substantially in President Trump's favor in just the last few weeks of the election, skewed the polling data meaningfully away at the last minute. And of course, because it was a last minute shift, it didn't really reach the aggregate of polls in a sizable uh, fashion with enough consistent data because we just didn't have enough time. So it was that last minute swing. Um, obviously this year, the main problem we have is the coronavirus is driving um, let's see, we have 35.3 million people have already voted. So um, you're looking at a situation where not only is there unlikely to be an October surprise on par with the Comey letter, um, Vice President Biden has been in the public eye for 40 plus years. I, I'm not familiar with any, um, I don't know, investigations or crazy scandals that he might have been involved in or anything that the Obama administration did over those eight years that hasn't already been unearthed that he might be impugned with. Um, so that really creates a scenario where Donald Trump is eating up all of the oxygen in the room. And of course, since then, he's had a very precipitous decline in the polls of about four points since the first debate and then contracted coronavirus. Um, he's since recovered, but has not really meaningfully rebounded in the polls in any material way. Um, but those are the main differences between 2016 and 2020. And I really don't think they're the very similar campaigns in general. I mean, the one thing that's similar is that Trump is in both of them, but everything else is different. Got it. And I know you want to obviously get to talking about the Senate here, but I mean, just one more, and it's really for both of you. I mean, are either of you guys concerned about a contested election or say not knowing the results of the election on November 4th or beyond? I mean, I'll kick yep. it off. I'm yeah, not. Um, I, I think, you know, we do have an issue where the three Rust Belt states that decided the election in 2016 are going to be amongst the latest to report their findings. But Arizona and North Carolina are two states that Biden currently leads in by about three points in, uh, in Arizona and uh, slightly less than that in North Carolina. And if either of those races are called on election night, in 2016, North Carolina was called at 11.15 p.m. So if North Carolina gets called and it's called for Biden, that's basically the ballgame. Um, states have a tendency to skew together. So if he wins North Carolina, there's a strong corollary effect that he would also win Florida. And I think you could probably make the same argument for Arizona. Um, so if we get any of those races called early, that, that, that would lead to no contesting of the election really at all. Yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would agree with that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, if, if the election is close, there is some risk. If the election's not close, there's no risk. I mean, I, there, there's no way that the president can, well, he can say whatever he wants to say, right? And, and, and he probably will. But if he says that there is somehow, you know, fraud on a level that results in Joe Biden winning, you know, 300 plus electoral college votes, that's just not plausible. And more importantly, the Republican establishment, who already, frankly, is ready to move on from Trump to a large degree, 
is not going to support him in that. So if 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 the White House looks like it can be won by contesting, you know, the results in a state, like what happened in 2000 in Florida, sure, there could be a contested election. If um, the result of the election is anything like what the poll seems to indicate right now, no, there's there's no way that he can plausibly contest it. All right, let's um let's switch to the Senate. How do you see the Senate makeup when this election is over? I, I still think it's going to be really tight. Um, I know that consensus now and groups like 538 have about a 70% chance that Democrats pick up the Senate, but it's really a, a heavy lift. All the things I've said previously about extreme voter turnout leading to an extreme outcome really do need to come true for Democrats to pick up the Senate. Um, there is a very good chance that they pick up the Susan Collins seat in Maine, a good chance that they pick up Colorado, and uh, it looks very likely that Arizona will shift into uh, Mark Kelly's camp. So there's your three races. Um, beyond that, it gets very difficult because, of course, Doug Jones in Alabama is going to lose. Um, the next most likely is probably Cal Cunningham um, eking out a win in North Carolina. Um, then there are the races in Iowa where the Democratic candidate leads by an average of about five points, which definitely exceeds Joe Biden's lead in the state. Um, then beyond that, you're looking at the two seats in Georgia, possibly if we're looking at a D plus 10 outcome in general, you could be looking at Montana and South Carolina. And then if things get real crazy, maybe picking up Texas. But I think the path to 49 is a lock for Democrats. Getting to 50, 51, 52 is very incrementally more difficult. Um, and then getting beyond 52 is really going to take a substantial wave on par with Reagan's win um, back in the 1980s. So I think that you are looking at a situation where no matter what, the 2021 Senate race is going to be very closely divided. And one of the things investors don't spend enough time on, in my opinion, is recalling that in 2008, when Obama won the White House and eventually got 60 seats in the Senate, that is a supermajority. That is a Senate conference that can get away with whatever it wants, um, as we saw with the Health Care Act. Um, when you are looking at 2020, you're not even remotely close to that threshold. So you'd, you're already talking about really extreme things um, in order to get legislation passed, like using budget reconciliation instructions, which they definitely will try to do. Um, otherwise, you're looking at getting 60 votes by attracting five to 10 Republicans to your cause, which I think is doable. Um, I know that's optimistic, but I do think that there's going to be a pretty substantial paradigm shift in 2021. And then um, in the extreme case you pull the filibuster uh, but the senate's going to be really tight no matter what even in the event of a blue wave it's still going to be tight yeah let me just sort of weigh in there too i mean you know henrietta tends to work in facts i'm just gonna i'm gonna go based off of gut here but you know i think that there are a lot of republican leaning independents um democrats who disliked hillary clinton in 2016 and uh you know even establishment republicans who really dislike donald trump on a personal level and are probably, and you see this in some of the polling and, and, and some of the you know questions, who likely are going to vote for Joe Biden because they just dislike Donald Trump and they frankly want to turn the channel. Those folks are not necessarily going to vote Democratic down ballot as well. So I know that ballot splitting is not really a thing anymore that happens, but 
personally, in my gut, I think we're going to see more ballot splitting than we have before. And that's why I would agree with Henrietta. I think the, you know, the outcome here is probably Biden winning the White House. If the Democrats claim the Senate, which it's increasingly looking like they will, it probably will be by a more narrow margin than perhaps you would be able to get, you know, uh, gauge from just looking at, at national polling data. Got it. Hey, and Spencer, while you're hot on this topic, too, we'll give Henry a little break here. But I mean, let's let's assume that we're right and Biden is president in and, and there is a blue wave of sort that of sorts that gets us to 50, 51, 52, 53 on the Senate side. Talk about the prospects for legislation on the health care front. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it's going to depend on the size of that majority. Um, because if you have only 50 or, well, first of all, 50 votes with, say, Kamala Harris breaking the tie as the vice president, it's, it's a majority in name only. I mean, it's, it's really not a true majority. You can't really govern that way. Um, I mean, if one person gets the flu, all of a sudden you have, you're not in the majority anymore. So um, 51, 52, that's still extremely narrow, and, and it really limits what you're able to do. Once you start getting into 53, 54, 55, now you're getting into numbers that are higher where... Um, there's a higher margin of error, at least in theory, and at least in theory, there's the chance of pulling the filibuster. Um, the thing that I think gives me pause, and I, I know it gives Henrietta pause as well, is that, you know, by definition, the Democrats winning seats this November are winning seats from Republicans in purple and red states. So you're not talking about AOC or Elizabeth Warren types. These are going to be very moderate, middle of the road uh you know, conservative Democrats, we'll conservative for a Democrat. Uh, and so as a result of that, there's going to be a limitation on how far you can actually get legislation in the Senate. And so with regards to health care, I mean, look, I think that a Joe Biden and uh, a Democratic controlled Congress could probably pass what I call an ACA 2.0, Affordable Care Act 2.0. So these are things like expanding tax credits to make them available to more people, making those tax credits more generous, getting more people, you know, coverage through the exchanges. And also incentivizing the mostly southern states who have not, to this point, expanded Medicaid. Um, those things are possible. Where I think they're going to struggle is anything related to the public option, um, unless it's a very, very benign public option that really doesn't have much of an impact. Um, you know, Joe Biden has talked about lowering the Medicare age to 60. I also think that's really difficult. And, and the reason why it's difficult, and I won't go into too much detail here, but the reason why these coverage expansion issues are so difficult is that by definition, the way they save money is by using the power of the regulatory state to lower reimbursements to hospitals and doctors. That's just not a winning uh, political argument. And, you know, for some of these incoming freshman Democrats from, from purple and red states with large rural popula populations and a lot of rural hospitals, if they were to support coverage expansion through a public option or Medicare expansion or whatever the case may be, that results in reimbursements being lowered to these hospitals rural hospitals are going to go out of business. And, and so politically, there's, there's only so far they can go. The last thing I'll just say quickly here is that I do think that there's one area where a Democratic-controlled Congress and a Joe Biden could have a real impact on health care is with regards to drug pricing and pharma. Um, I don't think they can go as far as perhaps House Democrats would like them to go, but pharma definitely has a, a pretty large bullseye on it. And Certainly within the Medicare program, at least, you can make those changes through the budget reconciliation process that only requires 51 votes. So you're looking at, you know, probably some changes that actually would be beneficial to hospitals and managed care by expanding the exchanges and, and Medicaid, and probably not a lot of the things that, that the industry thinks are the most scary things. Drug pricing, again, a little bit different, but, but at least as regards to coverage expansion, that's sort of how I would view it. 
Got it. And I guess, Henrietta, I mean, it's sort of the same question for you with a little bit of a tweak. I mean, let's just assume that it's, assume it's your baseline, right? You get to 40, 49 on the, on the Senate side on the, for the Democrats. You have a Biden win and a GOP-controlled Senate. Talk about the priorities in terms of legislation for the Biden administration in, say, the first year. Um, well, just to be clear, I do think that it's more likely now that Democrats control 50 seats just based on how substantial the swing has been since Biden and Trump entered into their first debate and then President Trump got coronavirus. The polls have trended away from a Biden plus seven situation to an average of a Biden plus 10 um, in some cases, plus 12 situations. So um, I do think that there is more of a likelihood that Maine, North Carolina, Colorado, and Arizona all flip, which would give you 50 seats. But just you know, to answer your question in another direction, I do think the first priority for Democrats is going to be deficit finance stimulus. The question is how much they get, not whether or not they try to do that. That is their first priority. Um, so the process for the Biden administration is going to be two-pronged. They'll first try to get COVID relief, which would be a repeat of the CARES Act, so $2 trillion in, hey, let's just get over the hump until we get a vaccine. We obviously can't, you know, reopen the economy without a vaccine, so let's make sure we have unemployment insurance benefits and other round of direct payments to individuals, aid to state and local governments, especially as we enter into the winter months and COVID spikes back up, as we've already seen is happening. Um, they're going to need to have some sort of a bridge loan, and that's effectively what this would be. The Federal Reserve Chairman has told Speaker Pelosi to go big, and she very much wants to do that, as you're seeing from the stimulus negotiations right now. She's not willing to come down below a $2 trillion number because that's what she thinks the current situation demands. And she will be the speaker in 2021, no matter what happens in the election is my expectation. So um, deficit finance spending for COVID relief in the $2 trillion range would be bill number one. Bill number two would be another bill designed to um, put people back to work, which the Democrats traditionally believe is best achieved via infrastructure investment. Infrastructure had a substantial multiplier effect. It was a huge portion of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which, of course, Joe Biden was responsible for securing three Republican votes for in 2009. That was an $831 billion package that would pale in comparison to what they want to see now. Um, the second side of that is, well, that's all fine and well for the president to want two separate bills at $2 trillion each for a total of $4 trillion, maybe by the first half of the year, uh, with one of the bills coming in the first quarter for sure. The second priority here is going to be what the actual staff wants to do. So um, Speaker Pelosi and the House Ways and Means Committee will be responsible for writing these pieces of legislation. Therefore, they're the ones in control. I strongly suggest focusing on what staff has to say here because they're the ones that are going to be writing this bill. Incidentally, a lot of them were the ones who wrote the ARRA as well. Um, and then the Senate Finance Committee staff. So those two groups will start working immediately after the election, ideally so that they have a bill ready for a President Biden to sign uh, very shortly after he becomes president and is sworn in. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, if I'm not mistaken, was signed into law by February 17th. So that's the trajectory that Speaker Pelosi and her staff are currently working with. And the question is really just, can we control the Senate floor or are we going to have to get 60 votes? Um, if we need to get 60 votes, maybe it takes longer. There will be a honeymoon process uh, and a honeymoon period, but it will be very short. I anticipate it would not last more than three months. So any stimulus bill you're going to get needs 
needs to come in the first quarter um, at the outset if there's a 50-51 seat majority. Um, certainly, if Democrats only have 49 seats, you need to get that bill out in the first three months. After that, pretty much nothing else is going to pass. So I think that's the case regardless of what the Democrats majority, even if there was a, you know, 54 seats in the Democratic conference in the Senate, you're really only looking at deficit finance stimulus in 2021. The question of magnitude is how big is it? Um, I think one and a half trillion is the low end and the high end is probably three trillion, I think you could get enough votes for. Um, the key point would be here that everything is deficit financed. You do not have enough votes to raise the corporate tax rate. You do not have enough votes to raise individual tax rates. They all expire in 2024 anyway. And that is something I think people forget routinely. Um, the desire to reform the tax code is not paramount for Democrats. The only reason the Democrats talk about paying for stimulus is because of the general sort of fiscal responsibility dialogue that happens nationwide and um, the dialogue that Republicans in the Senate in particular are trying to advance right now. Democrats don't have as a priority um, in either one, two or three as reforming the tax code. When they propose tax increases, it's to offset the cost of stimulus. Now, one of the things that I um, really think is important and regularly overlooked is that no Democratic president has ever raised taxes to provide stimulus. The two are mutually exclusive in their view. And so when you're trying to stimulate the economy, especially uh, one driven into a recession by a global pandemic, you do not raise taxes as a way to offset the cost. Indeed, you don't offset the cost as all, at all. Couple that with the Federal Reserve telling you that you can spend as much money as you can think to spend and you have evaporated your need for deficit consciousness. Um, and at that point, then you just get deficit finance stimulus. And that is my anticipation for uh, the entire Biden administration, quite frankly. No, and it's interesting, too, because I think that that's something that it's been amazing to me from talking with clients about sort of the change in the narrative of not only a Biden win, but also just potentially the potential for a blue wave type scenario. In the beginning, it was, well, he's going to come in, he's going to raise taxes, he's going to come in, it's going to be, you know, this is going to be a disaster, that's going to be a disaster. And it is amazing. And maybe it's from you talking with our clients, or maybe it's other people talking about the same kind of thing. But as you start talking about these scenarios of stimulus plus relief plus an infrastructure package, there's a real bullish case to be made for the first quarter of 2021. Um, under some of these scenarios. And just real quick, I mean, I think we should probably just, I just want to make sure that I'm still correct on these numbers in terms of the basic scenarios out there, right? So if you have a Trump win, a GOP-controlled Senate, a Democratic House, you're probably looking at a package in the first quarter, maybe in the lame duck, which is something else we could talk about, but in the first quarter, probably that might reach a total of $500 billion. Um, under a Biden win, GOP-controlled Senate and the Dem House, that number, as you just said, probably gets to one and a half or two. And then in a real blue wave type scenario in a Biden win, you could get as high as four trillion in that stimulus slash relief slash infrastructure. Those numbers still about accurate? Yeah, I, I think that's right. So if we, if, if we can switch gears a little bit now, um, we get asked by our clients all of the time uh, for our odds on a host of topics. So I'd like to end this episode with a pretty rapid fire list of questions for one or both of you. Um, some of these may be a little off topic, but I think they're relevant and the outcome is going to drive markets. So um, who knows, some of them might even tease some of our future podcast topics. 
So I'll ask you a couple of questions. Give me your odds for each scenario and a brief explanation of the logic behind them. Henriette, I'll start with you. Uh, given all the chatter and optimism around a deal, a stimulus deal between the White House and Pelosi and all of the headlines flying around as frequently as about 30 seconds ago, um, what are the odds of a meaningful stimulus package passing before the elections? Mitt Romney came out today and said he was opposed to a $1.8 trillion package. If you can't get Mitt Romney, you don't have a bill. So I'm technically at 30% or less, but uh, I would be pretty comfortable saying there's not going to be a stimulus here. If anything, maybe we can reach a deal on airlines, but even that is very low odds, 20% or so less. And, and what about during the lame duck? It depends on the outcome of the election. If Trump wins, there's a possibility, and then that package would be in the $500 billion range. The best news for the lame duck is that the government will shut down on December 11th unless they pass a piece of legislation to keep it open. So there is a natural catalyst for a stimulus bill to pass, and that creates an opportunity in the event Trump wins. If he loses, probably none. Got it. Um, are we going to see the filibuster pulled? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think it's realistic to anticipate. Um, Biden was a senator for 36 years. You need to get 51 votes in the Senate to pull the filibuster, and I don't think they have that many. Got it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, look, I think whichever party first gets to, say, 55 or 56 votes in some future election, I think the filibuster is uh, potentially threatened. But if you're at 51 or 52, it's, it's, it's just a simple matter of vote counting. They, they don't have the votes to pull the, fil pull the filibuster. Got it. Um, Spencer, one for you. Um, and you probably better start by defining what the public option is. And I know you touched on this briefly, but what are the odds of a public option uh, being implemented under a Biden administration? Yeah, we hit the nail on the head. It comes down to what you mean. I mean, if you're talking about a public option that is really aggressive, that uh, pays at Medicare rates and is available to anybody in the commercial market, um, and it's really sort of designed to be kind of a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, if you will, Medicare for all style. Um, no, it's not going to happen. I, I mean, less than 5%. Um, now, if you have a public option where managed care plays a role in actually delivering the services, if it uh, is only available in the individual market, so basically only about 10 million people have access to it, and if the goal is to lower costs and therefore premiums by, say, 5 to 10%, which is pretty similar to what we saw happen in Washington State and Colorado, which are the only two states that have actually been able to pass public option legislation at the state level. If that were to happen at the federal level, um, 40, 45 percent, I mean, I still think it's going to be difficult because, again, like we talked about before, the whole point of the public option is using the power of the state to reduce reimbursements to hospitals. And hospitals that are already uh, facing very significant financial issues, which are lar largely rural hospitals, are the ones that are most at risk. And so, it's just, again, it's a matter of simple vote counting. I mean, you're, you're, if, if the Democrats gain the majority, they're gaining the majority with senators who represent rural states with a lot of rural hospitals. They're not going to vote to blow up their own hospitals. So um, I think there's 40 to 45 percent chance that they get some sort of a relatively benign public option that really doesn't do anything other than kind of sop up a handful of people who have been priced out of insurance in the individual market. Uh, in terms of like a really robust public option, uh, I mean, I'll say less than 5%. It's, it's basically 0%. There's no way. Spencer, I have one for you. As our resident Rust Belt native, what do you think <laughs> is going to go down with the sort of 
Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota demographic in the election? I, I, well, let me just to be perfectly clear, I have not lived in the Rust Belt for a number of years, but my family is still there. Um, everything that I'm seeing and hearing is that Joe Biden has a very good chance to win all four of those states that you mentioned. Now, first of all, just let's start with the easiest one, which is Minnesota, that the last time a Republican won that was 1972. I mean, Walter Mondale even won it in 1984, was literally the only state he won. So um, I realized that Trump got pretty close in Minnesota. I realize the demographics uh, favor him in that it's a very white state. But um, no, I don't, I don't think Trump can win Minnesota. Wisconsin seems to be out of reach. Michigan seems to have gone to Biden a while ago. And Pennsylvania, um, it's fluctuated a bit. But, you know, look, I mean, Biden is, is a native of Scranton. I realize it was a long time ago. But I think those four states, I, I would lean towards Joe Biden winning those states, um, at least three of the four of them, if not all four. Uh, there, there's just a number of voters who I think in those states, or, or let me put it this way, there are enough voters in those states who have buyer's remorse. Um, and on top of that, I think that you're going to see a dramatic increase in the number of people who are voting who traditionally vote for Democrats who might have sat out 2016 or voted third party. That um, even though there is a, a strong uh, contingent of people in those states who love Donald Trump and everything he stands for, I don't think he can win this time. You know, it's incredible. There has been an analysis done of how many people have voted in all these states versus 2016. The states that Trump won are the ones that most quickly exceeded their 2016 early voting totals. It's it's pretty incredible. It's like they actually do have buyer's remorse in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and then Minnesota blew it out more than any of them. So it's like they all wanted to to prove something early in 2016, uh, in 2020 versus 2016. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, the other thing is uh, people talk a lot about the Rust Belt. I just think nationally, I mean, we've talked about this a lot uh, internally amongst ourselves, but I mean, Joe Biden has been ahead in the polls 7 to 10% for the last nine months. Nothing has moved it at all. It's, it's almost a boring election in some ways. And, you know, he's currently at the point where he's winning by nine to 10 points. Like, Polling can't be that wrong. I, I, it, it just can't. You know, it, it never has been. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we, we need to listen to what the data is telling us right now. Could something change? Sure, of course it could. We're in the middle of coronavirus and anything can happen. But, man, for Trump to win, he's going to have to overcome some, frankly, historical odds that no one has ever been able to do before. Not even the uh, Thursday night debate. Badass Savannah Guthrie going to show herself again? I know she's not the moderator, but no bombshells. I don't know if it matters. What do you think, Henrietta? Well, it mattered in the first one. Uh, the first one's usually the most watched, and this one's probably not going to be an exception. Um, but given that Trump you know, bowed out of the second debate, and this is the last opportunity people have to see Trump, um, I do think that that could be a compelling draw. And plus, we saw that Joe Biden's town hall attracted more viewers. So maybe the two of them combined creates sort of a force this Thursday. Um, and the outcome of the first debate, which I guess is probably complicated by the president contracting coronavirus, is a uh, has been that the vice president gained an average of three and a half points in the polls. So maybe the debates would be meaningful. Um, president. Trump cannot afford to lose another three points. The Republicans down ballot can't afford to let that happen. Um, but it, it, it has the potential to. Yeah. 
I think for me, the most interesting part will be that they're going to actually mute these guys for two minutes to allow the other one to actually speak, which sounds like it's great news for Biden, but it also means that no one can interrupt Donald Trump for two minutes either. So this will be fascinating. I feel like there will be a lot of yelling over the muted mic, personally. <laughs> hey, and totally off topic, Spencer, I do have to jump in. Just give me the last one, which is the odds of the ACA being struck down. Uh, in full, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, the, 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 this case that you're referring to, California v. Texas, from a legal perspective, is, is bunk. Um, it just is. It, 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 it doesn't make any sense on standing, which is the ability to sue in the first place. It doesn't make any sense from a constitutional perspective, and it doesn't make any sense from a severability issue, which is you know, the ability to sever the portions of a law that might be unconst unconstitutional from the rest of the law. And that's not just me saying it. I mean, every credible conservative legal scholar has said this is bunk. Um, the entire ACA is not going away. Vast majorities of the ACA are not going away. Is there a risk that certain portions could go away? Y yeah. I mean, I think if you have a six to three conservative majority once Amy Coney Barrett is seated, which she will be, um, you know, the risk exists. But um, I, I tend to think the court is going to surprise some people here and that there's going to be a recognition even among a handful of the conservative justices that this case just sort of is a bridge too far. And it's, it's very weak from a legal perspective. So I, I don't think the ACA is going away. I don't think Medicaid expansion is going away. There is an outside chance that there could be some changes made to the commercial market as it relates to pre-existing conditions in the individual and small group markets, which is about one third of the commercial market. And that would have negative consequences, obviously, for people who are older, uh, people with pre-existing conditions, people with chronic conditions, obviously would be disruptive for managed care in hospitals. But um, I, I tend to think that just because of the merits of the case, which are, are pretty poor, quite frankly, that the Supreme Court's ultimately going to surprise some people on this one. Okay. If I'm not missing anything here, um, this has been Mark for the Veda Predictions podcast. Thanks to all of our listeners, and we'll speak to you all again soon. Mm -hmm.